Professors FM. Doug, as you know, we have joined the Professors FM podcast network. So it's extremely exciting. It's like for the first time in my life, I'm going to have academic friends. This is big. And as part of this, we're going to talk about some of the other shows on the network. One of the things we talk a lot about in terms of sports analytics is the role of incentives, right? It's all about incentives. And so one of the other shows on the network is called Taxes for the Masses, brought to you by Lisa DeSimone from the University of Texas and Bridget Stomberg from Indiana University. And so what these two ladies do is they dive into all things taxes. I think it's a great compliment to what we do. In some ways, there's nothing bigger in public policy than taxes in terms of shaping the economy and society because taxes change how people behave. So, you know, give it a listen. Great show. Analytics with Mike Lewis, the podcast where we talk about everything you need to know about sports analytics. Here's your host, Mike Lewis, marketing professor at Emory University. Welcome, everyone. This is Mike Lewis, joined by Doug Battle. This is the Fanalytics podcast. Uh, Doug, before we get going, let me tell you something. Okay. I am. Um, I'm fairly happy. I thought this was going to have to be an episode where we discussed politics yet again. But <laughs> thankfully, the Patriots have decided to sign Cam Newton to a one-year deal. So we get to actually talk about sports and analytics. Wow. That is a breath of fresh air here in a year where it seems like all there is to talk about is uh, highly divisive things. And while sports may be divisive, it's far more comfortable for me to talk about. <laughs> so, so I'm excited about that. Hey, I want to add in to, uh, in addition to the whole Cam Newton situation this last week, we had the MLB announcing a return, uh, which I've seen described as a house of cards situation. You've got over 600 players. Um, and essentially if anybody is hospitalized or if anything happens, the whole thing could crumble um, and then the NBA's kind of doubled down on their stance to return, which is interesting given that Florida's seen like a spike in, in COVID cases this week. But a Adam Silver's seemed adamant that the season is going to happen. So, you know, depending on where you stand on things, if you're listening, you know, good news for those craving sports, um, bad news for those who feel like they're taking advantage of of situation well, for financial all, benefit <laughs> all live performances are a house of cards at this point yeah um you know it's and again no one wants to hear it but you know the the, the prescribed policy for university professors in the fall they've described it as you enter in one door you leave through another door you wear a mask to the classroom until you enter the teaching zone yes the teaching zone where you put a face shield on and then you, uh, and, and the teaching zone is behind a plexiglass barrier. Oh. Once you have the face shield on, then you may address the class. Now, if you step out of the teaching zone and have a conversation with the student, you are required to put the mask on. And I, I just go through this because everything is a house of cards at this point. But back to Cam Newton. So, what are your thoughts, Doug? <laughs> Yeah, I mean, are we really surprised that the Patriots pulled this off? Did we really think the Patriots were going to go 
into a season after losing Tom Brady uh, with with you know a lot of speculation that Bill Belichick was a part of that. Do we think Belichick was just going to embrace a potentially a tank for Trevor Lawrence kind of season? I'm not surprised at all. I think the Patriots are masters of finding value, of finding situations that are really low risk, high reward. And clearly the most obvious example is a six round pick on Tom Brady. But we've seen it over and over again with all the pieces they've surrounded Brady with over the years. And now we've got Cam Newton, a guy who, of course, is five years removed from an MVP season. Uh, But you know, one thing I haven't seen spoken about as much is that he's really last year he didn't play because of injury and there's some concern there. The season before he had his highest completion percentage of his career. So when you look at the potential here, you know, you got a team that's been competitive and you trade out an aging, you know, goat, I guess, of a quarterback in Tom Brady and you bring in a little bit younger, more athletic and potentially more dynamic quarterback at this stage of his career in Cam Newton. I'm not surprised by it. We'll see what happens. I think a lot of his contract is incentive-based, so the Patriots aren't in a situation where they can lose here. If it doesn't work out, they can move on in one year without really losing anything financially. Um, Great situation for the Patriots. It's amazing to me that they're always the team that does this, that no one else kind of comes in and and gets these kind of deals. But here we are again with New England uh, winning in the offseason. Quite a bit to unpack there. So let me... um... Let me sort of work through my thoughts on this and feel free to feel free to interject as I go through some of this. Um, I, I think you, you a real nice summary of what's going on, because I think you hit just about every aspect of it. And it's clearly a multidimensional story. So number one on this. And this is this is straight in terms of the analytics, the. The starting point for me on this is that this is a and Cam Newton's. I think you said a little bit younger. I think how many years has Cam Newton actually played in the league? Six, seven years. Oh, he's it's it's longer than that. I think. Uh, eight, okay. He's played eight seasons. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Time time flies as you get older. So I'll, that 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 one's on me. But the analytics of player usage and player injuries is a. To my mind, it's an underdeveloped field, right? I, I think a lot of the concerns about Newton were based on the the history of injuries and related to that, the idea that you know there's too much wear and wear and tear on the body. the The problem with analytics related to injuries is it's a it's a task that you really can't make much headway in because it's going to be impossible to find data on true severity of injuries simply because that 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 data is not really going to exist right and so i think if you look up you know if you look up players you'll see oh shoulder injury knee injury uh but very little information about and perhaps this doesn't occur anywhere except in within specific medical records of how severe those injuries were so when you're looking at a player like cam newton it's hard to start to put numbers and say, well, you know what, he's likely to come back from that, that his percentage probability of coming back given his age and the nature of the industry injuries is 80% or maybe it's 20%. Now, where analytics has had a little bit more success is 
is in the case of uh, running backs where there's there's actually been I mean I've seen a little bit of modeling done along these lines but there's okay. been some heuristics that have been derived over time for running backs and I, I forget the actual numbers maybe you remember them it's if you've had something let's say 300 touches in one year or if you've hit 1500 touches for the career that it's time to find a different running back yeah absolutely on the flip side of that to me it seems like in sports there is this kind of bias against players with injury histories um and so you see a guy like frank gore for example at miami tore his acl twice in college and there's kind of this thought that he's a guy that's always going to get hurt and then comes to the nfl and just about never gets hurt. He's 37 years old, and he's played every season. And you look at Nick Chubb at Georgia, and that's a guy that I watched in college, and he had an awful knee injury where he tore just about everything in his knee. And NFL draft comes around. A year later, he's played a full season, a great season. Draft comes around, and he is drafted after his backup in Sony Michelle um, because Sony had less wear and tear on his knees, and there's this thought that Chubb is not going to produce for very long at the next level or very well at the next level. And he's had a phenomenal start to his career here, clearly uh, second leading rusher this last year. And so to me, with Cam Newton, there's almost this thought with people that, you know, he had this foot injury last year and he's in his 30s now. This means that he's more likely to have more injuries in the past, which, you know, of course, there's some truth. There's some players that that hit a certain age and they become derailed by injuries from then on. Uh, but if you look at the Patriots and players like Randy Moss, who they've taken on late and revived their career, they like to gamble on those kind of guys that are being counted out. And they like to, to bet a little bit on the possibility that this player returns to form or, or close to it. Okay. That's very, that that's very fair. And I think it's, it's well said in it, in it, it actually reinforces this the point that I made about a lack of data and being able to predict returns from injury that we are we the, these executives are going to tend to rely on heuristics and heuristics lives right north right next door to the idea of biases and and so you're right if if what the executive has in their mind is that running quarterbacks, athletic quarterbacks, after they've had a couple of injuries, their performance drops off. There is a danger that a player like Newton will be overlooked because they're going back to uh, this, this, you know, this list of players that they have in their head who, after they lost half a step, were no longer as, as effective. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I also totally agree with the point of and I don't know I don't remember exactly how you said it. I always think of the term of like booms versus busts, mm-hmm. sort of low value or low cost plays to go after athletes that may be booms, right? That you can take a flyer on a sixth sixth round quarterback pick because you're not investing a lot, but potentially there's this tremendous I, I, upside. Might be one of the words that, right. I, that the the talking heads on TV. That, that's like use. a Mel Kiper word. <laughs> tremendous upside. Yeah. Um, and, and so, right. If if you look at uh, if you look at a Cam Newton and you say, you know, based on the injuries, and I'll use a term here, based on the, the injuries and his age, but his level of past success and skills, 
that perhaps there's a 20% chance that he reverts to form and becomes a comeback player of the year. And there's an 80% chance that he has lost more than half a step and he, he washes out then it's probably worth it to sign him for a $1 million contract with, I think, seven, $8 million in impossible incentives. Right, right. And I think another thing to remember here is the Patriots aren't putting all their eggs in this basket, right? And I don't think they would do that. Um, they're very picky in the deals that they choose to go through with. And they chose one here where they're really not giving up anything. Like their situation before was they have Jarrett Stidham they seem confident in his abilities, and now they still have Jarrett Stidham, and they also have a former MVP quarterback, if nothing else, uh, to compete with Jarrett Stidham and, and to push him to be the best he can be. And I know there is a party that thinks that's going to happen. It seems um, unlikely to me uh, to, to imagine Cam Newton backing up Jarrett Stidham, especially to uh, any Auburn fans that watch both of their college careers. But um, like I said, the Patriots really are not giving up much, at least in guaranteed assets other than, you know, say a million dollars. And then as Newton performs, there's the possibility of paying him more and extending him beyond this year. Oh, let, let me say counterpoint in terms of this sort of glowing uh, praise for this move on the part of the Patriots. Sure. This different kind of uh, uh, bias sort of, uh, flaw in decision-making, this idea of the winner's curse. So the winner's curse is basically the idea that if you've got a crowd bidding on some asset, in this case the asset is a quarterback, that the winner will tend to be dissatisfied with the outcome because the winner is the entity, the team that has the highest valuation. So alternatively, we could look at this as of all the NFL teams, only the Patriots thought that Cam Newton was worth, and I don't know what the incentives are, but let's say the expected value of the contract is $3 million, that the Patriots are the only team that thought he was worth $3 million, which leads us back to this question. And this was this was definitely behind the scenes in your initial description of the situation that the Patriots always seem to be able to pull this off, that somehow the Patriots are smarter than the rest of the NFL franchises. Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, maybe I mean, I see what you're saying that perhaps. Um, they've overvalued. Oh, I'm not making. I'm not making. I'm not making a point. The Patriots may well be, and I'm not a Patriots fan. The Patriots may well be smarter than all the other NFL franchises. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm in that camp <laughs> when when it comes to these kind of decisions, and I think um, it's hard to argue with with history here. But at the same time, um, uh, I mean, another bias with Cam is that basing future projections on performance when he was five years younger and much healthier and really you know potentially a completely different player um, he's got a big name he's got a big track record but does that mean he's going to produce next season or in the future we'll find out I think it's a a reasonable move in that I don't think they're losing much um, even if he doesn't well and in some ways what what's great about this story is that it does highlight some of the limitations of analytics. Uh, you know, a player like Cam Newton, and I used the term probability distribution a mm -hmm. moment ago, 
for those that are, let's say, novice statistical modelers, you have a forecasting model. What you will come up with is something called a point estimate, which might be a forecast of how many touchdown passes Cam Newton is going to throw this year. Well, that that that's fine, and that's fine and it's good, but it's probably more useful to think in terms of ranges or likelihood of different levels of uh, performance. So what's the probability that Cam Newton ends up being a pro ball player? What's the probability he ends up not finishing the season? And so that's, it's a different kind of approach to analytics than what you're typically familiar with in a, let's say, a first-year stats class. But it, it highlights the absolute challenge in making the making this decision and the inherent limitations of relying on analytics I, I don't think anyone let's say you had a real yeah, great analytics staff and you crunched all sorts of numbers and you came up with this forecast of how cam newton was going to perform i i don't know that there's anyone in the real world that would take that forecast verbatim I think the reality is that they would look at it and use that as a starting point and then start to consider, well, based on what I think about how people come back from injuries or based on what I think about how players like you know running quarterbacks, how they perform as they age, that that's how you're going to arrive at your, your forecast. And while that's not what people talk about in these situations, essentially that's what's going on, that the Patriots have a forecast or Bill Belichick has a forecast for what Cam Newton is going to produce. So, Mike, you know, asking on behalf of kind of the casual sports fan. Yes, let me let me apologize that today we got into the term probability oh, distribution I mean, don't, statistical don't, model. I don't think you have to apologize for that. I think it's really yeah. uh, what we're here for with analytics. But asking on behalf of the casual sports fan, how much – do these statistical and, and analytical studies play into this kind of decision-making for a team like the Patriots to the best of your knowledge? I mean, are the NFL teams really embracing analytics in this sense when it comes to signing a player like Cam Newton, or is it still more of a gut feeling? I have a hunch, you know, if I'm a GM type move. I think almost across the board at, it, when when these signings take place, that the analytics ends up being just in just a single input, a single piece of a single piece of data that is then considered, okay. and, and that that should make a lot of sense to people. I mean, when when we consider the amount of dollars involved on most significant sports signings, and and in this case, you know, it may not even be the dollars that are so significant. It's almost more of the publicity splash that is significant that when New England makes this decision, they're investing a lot of, well, let's call it reputation capital in, in the near term, that they want to feel good about it. And so you, you think about the folks make, look, Bill Belichick is a genuine expert at football. I don't think anyone's going to, I don't think anyone's going to challenge that. And that expertise is based on coaching. I, I don't know if he had a pl- what, what his playing career was, but this extensive decades of watching and understanding the game. And so he's got that body of knowledge that means that any type of 
let's say analytical work that you know comes back and says hey based on this injury the probabilities are you know Belichick has seen enough players that he probably has a even if he's not going to articulate it he probably has a pretty good estimate of the likelihood that that player is going to come back so let's say based on Belichick's experience that his projection for Cam Newton coming back to be an elite player is 30%. We could bring in the modelers, the analysts, and perhaps they come back and they say, no, Bill, it's 35%. Or alternatively, it's 25%. And so then the question, then what the, the Patriots are going to do is take that gut feel forecast and maybe adjust it a little bit because they have some new information from this statistical analysis. And it, this, this isn't just sports. I think this is pretty fair to say this is how all decisions are made. Let me put it this way. This is how all interesting decisions are made in the world, right? So it could be the CEO of General Motors, the president of the United States, or the the coach of the Georgia Bulldogs, right? Mm -hmm. These are experts in their field, and the analytics are going to be something that maybe moves them a little bit in in one direction or or another. Yeah, it seems to me as though for, for guys like that, like a Bill Belichick, they might even kind of come to a determination on their own and use analytics to support their decision um, when when there are numbers that favor how they already feel, if that makes sense. Do you think Belichick actually cares, though? No, 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 no. Do no, being I, the analytics guy at the Patriots I might think be... Bill Belichick <laughs> might be offended um, if anyone yeah. were to, to tell him he's wrong because a computer said so, um, and, and okay. rightfully so, in my opinion. Let me... Uh, so how much of this getting off the analytics, but because I think this is important when we're talking about how decisions are made. So this also looks like that there's a bunch of, uh, well, well, let me, I, I don't want to bias you on this. How much do you think the Brady's decision to leave the Patriots and Belichick's decision to go after a uh, a quarterback that's on the a risky quarterback with upside like Cam Newton. How much of this do you think is uh, driven by the respective gentlemen's egos? I've seen quite a bit of speculation that it is for a guy like Tom Brady, um, Bill Belichick. You know, now in retaliation, I don't really buy it. I think, yeah. I think Brady's looking at his career and what he thinks in his is in his best interest. Um, I understand the notion that he wants to prove that he can win apart from this coach and that he's because there's this sense with even with Jordan and, and Kobe Bryant that they won their rings with Phil Jackson. And it's like maybe Phil Jackson's just that good of a coach that he just wins rings and you just happen to be the best player on that team. Um, I understand that notion with Brady. I don't think it's true. You know, I think there's a lot of variables. Probably wanted to change the scenery for a number of reasons. Probably felt like there was an interesting situation, a potentially different type of offense for him down in Tampa and probably a better living situation where he can almost ease his way into retirement in Tampa Bay. To me, I just don't buy the whole the whole storyline uh, with Brady versus Belichick. And then on Belichick's behalf, the guy's a competitor, right? His job's to win. 
his job's to find players. Well, this isn't typically the job of a head coach, but he's such a talent evaluator that his job is to find players that make his team competitive to win championships. And I don't think he's going and making moves to prove something to Tom Brady right now. I think he's doing his job. He's making moves that he believes make the Patriots a better football team and improve their chances of competing for a championship. Well, well here's a, here's a, here's a different question for you. And I, I, I think you're, I think you're pretty much dead on on that. I, I think, you know, these guys probably each want to uh, enhance their legacy, and maybe there's different paths to enhancing their legacy or their stories. Uh, but I think they're both doing fairly rational things. You mentioned the idea of the Patriots now dropping out of the Trevor Lawrence. The Trevor Lawrence. What would you call it? The Trevor Lawrence. I said, lottery? yeah, I said tank for Trevor. <laughs> but yeah, yeah, yeah they're they're. Pr- we say they're out. I mean, they could still stuff could happen, and they could lose a bunch of games. It just seems well, unlikely. But this is a different kind of question, and in, in an era of salary cap, I mean, in an era of salary caps, what the Patriots have done is truly remarkable, which gives credence to the idea that maybe Bill Belichick and the executives there are better than the NFL crowd in terms of making decisions and in a player evaluation, but. Like I said, in an era of the salary cap, in an era where a quarterback, you may have to pay the quarterback $30, $35 million, which may be 20 25% of the salary cap, I believe. Is there, a, if you were a Patriots fan, would you, uh, how, how would you feel about the idea of having cam newton for uh, a couple of years and maybe going to a couple of playoffs versus going one in 15 or who knows how many games they're actually going to play this year and having a uh, you know trevor lawrence for then uh f- you know for 10 15 years following that that is a great question mike and i think that's the question that's not being asked enough of uh, w- one thing to consider in this discussion is that there's no guarantee that the Patriots would have had the number one pick. It's far more likely that they would have had, you know, maybe a top 10 pick at all um, had they stuck with Stidham as, as their guaranteed starter. But, you know, in my opinion, yeah, I think with the way these leagues work now, it's better to, to be, to have a number one pick than to be a fringe playoff team you know, go eight and eight or or nine and seven and go lose in the wild card round and then have a middle round draft pick when you could have a quarterback that's that is projected. I'm not saying this is going to happen, but um, a lot of people think it's likely that he will have a phenomenal career and may even challenge a guy like Brady for, you know, a goat title by the time it's all said and done. So when you're talking about carrying on a dynasty and continuing it for as long as you can, I think, and these guys, these guys are competitors. And I think they're, they have a little bit of nearsightedness in that sense where they want to win now. Um, But if you look down the road, it could end up costing them a player like Trevor Lawrence. And I think that's huge. I think a great example um, that we've seen in in sports is the San Antonio Spurs, Um, highly competitive with David Robinson had one year late in his career that he missed and they were terrible and it ended up 
benefiting the Spurs for another 15 years uh, because they got the number one pick. They drafted Tim Duncan. They had a year together. They won a championship. And then the Spurs went on to have an entirely different dynasty with Tim Duncan as the man. I think that's the kind of scenario the Patriots could have with a guy like Trevor Lawrence. And I do think that's that's quite the cost. Right. And that's that's a different kind of analytics. I mean, you asked me about how much analytics enters into decision making. And, you know, I think I think it's mixed. One of the things I've always preached is uh, almost formalizing what you just described, yeah. uh, 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 you know, given the, the Spurs anecdote. But, uh, you know, just sort of the idea of or, you know, you go the 76ers and they're um, what they call that the process. Yeah. Trust the process. Trust th- this idea that decision-making roster construction should not be on, done on a year-to-year basis, but should be done on a, a you know, perhaps five-year planning horizon given the, and let's say, and maybe it's different in baseball versus the NFL based on how long athletes last. Uh, but the, the idea that you should manage your roster over multiple periods and multiple drafts because you know that's what it is one of the things that no one's really talking about is what is the opportunity cost of of bringing in a a cam newton and you know perhaps he gets you to you know if they he gets the patriots to eight and eight or nine or seven in a first round playoff loss I don't think anyone in New England is particularly interested in that no no I think it's Super Bowl or bust I think Patriots organization feels like this move improves their chances of winning a Super Bowl. Um, although, are they likely to win the Super Bowl? No. So, so it's it's a little bit of a catch twenty two there. Um, yeah. Let me let me say this, and, and I'm I'm throwing this back to you because I'm you know you're more of the. I think you watch a lot more sports than I do, so I'm going <laughs> to rely on your sure. response to this. I feel like this morning and yesterday that there's there's almost an overrating of Cam Newton. Yes. So it's like some of these biases, these negativity biases related to quarterbacks that are injured or players that are injured. We're almost getting the reverse because folks are focusing on focusing on some past, let's call it epic performances. Yeah. It's almost like boxing fans that cannot accept the fact that Mike Tyson is no longer the Mike Tyson of 1988. Right. right? It's like we're going to get him back in the ring with with a Vander Holyfield. Uh, <laughs> just th- th- this idea that, well, I mean, when you come back and say, well, the Patri- th- this might be the thing that gets the Patriots to the Super Bowl. And I've been watching the, the talk shows on ESPN this morning. Th- that seems to be the consensus. That's where people are at. Yeah, I, I don't... Is- is Cam Newton a guy that all the other teams passed on and signed for the league minimum? Is he a Super Bowl quarterback? Or are we just talking ourselves into I it? I think it's highly unlikely. I think the the best comparison you can make is Randy Moss um, when the Patriots brought him in and he was a huge part of kind of revitalizing or reviving Tom Brady's career at that point and making them, you know, the best team in the league all of a sudden. He was kind of the missing piece. But we saw the same thing when Tom Brady went to the Tampa Bay Bucks, and all of a sudden everyone starts acting like the Tampa Bay Buccaneers are Super Bowl favorites because they brought in Tom Brady, and he's won a lot of rings. I mean, this is a team 
that is a middling team um, and they throw in Tom Brady, but it's not like he's not to interrupt you, Doug here, but I I think the, the, you know, basically um, take the chiefs out of the AFC or have the chiefs not be successful for whatever reason. And it, it almost feels like at least this morning, that the most likely Super Bowl will be the Patriots versus the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. <laughs> yeah, and you know, I know ESPN is dying for that to happen, right? They want to see that Belichick versus Brady narrative really, really stretch out so they can make a 30 for 30 about the whole thing one day. And they likely will regardless. Um, but when we're talking about the likelihood of things happening and how much of a marginal impact a player like Cam Newton makes. I do think Cam Newton's important for the Patriots being competitive. Um, Tom Brady with the Bucks, yeah, I, I still think it's overrated. I think the odds will likely, you know, Vegas odds will likely favor these teams more than they should, and, and there's some inefficiency in that. But no, I, I, favorites, you know, we're talking about a league where Kansas City is the best team in football, and They've only improved through the draft. I mean, they bring in a, a great running back like Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, and they really didn't lose anything. Patrick Mahomes is very much in his prime. You know, there's a number of teams, to be quite honest, that I would take over the New England Patriots or Tampa Bay Bucks. you know, both in the NFC and AFC right now. And so I think there's a, a recency bias when players acquire – or when teams acquire players. This happens in the NBA. I remember when the Clippers – and Lakers were competing for Kawhi Leonard, and Kawhi goes to the Clippers, and all of a sudden, the Clippers are the favorites in the NBA, right? Because they got the player. If LA had gotten them, they would have been heavy favorites. But there's not an objective look at just what the roster is. And right now, now that the season's played out, the Lakers are very much treated like favorites over the Clippers. And so there's with these acquisitions of players and off-seasons, there's always so much excitement that it excites people maybe a little bit too much into thinking the power of marketing. Yeah. Yeah. Into thinking, you know, the team that most recently acquired a potential star player is the team that's most likely to win a championship. I don't think that's the case. here. It's almost like, Hey, you know, you could say the consumers, Hey, if the media is talking about this guy, the media is the expert. So the fact that they've been talking about this guy all morning means that he is good. And, it's time to get hyped up and excited. Right? It's a, it's a it's the beautiful thing about sports. Well, let's let's look at last offseason, the Cleveland Browns, right? Coming off a significant season in which Baker Mayfield proved that he is an NFL caliber quarterback as a rookie. They bring in Odell Beckham and what was viewed to be kind of a bargain trade. Um, and they bring in Jarvis Landry. Odell and Jarvis played in college together. They're both, you know, had been all pro caliber wide receivers. And, you know, Nick Chubb was looking good in the backfield. The Browns brought in Olivier Vernon on defense, couple pieces. And all of a sudden, people on ESPN are talking about could the Browns win the Super Bowl? And this is a team that, which sounds hilarious in retrospect, but people were talking about it because of the skilled players they had. No, you know, address of what's going on on the offensive line, defensive line, secondary, things of that nature. Um, But there's this bias, too, to who the star player, who the noteworthy players on a team are. And I think with the Browns, we saw them you know, their projections were skewed last season and they obviously underperformed to what people expected. And I could see the same thing happening either in, in Tampa or New England or both, to be frank. Well, 
you know, that, that brings up something else in all this. And, and that is, and, it, and it's something I think people understand, but they don't explicitly say, and that's the nature of the organizations. And because it's something hard to grasp, all, all we get to see, you know, when we talk about different organizations in football, and you mentioned, you mentioned two polar extremes, I think, at this point, the Patriots and the Cleveland Browns. Mm-hmm. It seems like when players go to the Patriots, then even if they've got horrendous histories of substance abuse and criminal records that outside of Antonio Brown, when they go to the Patriots, that suddenly it's such a professional organization that they are under control and they are disciplined and they perform above where they were going, you know, above how they would perform anywhere else in the league. Whereas if you go to Cleveland, then, you know, who knows? Maybe the, you know, you almost have to wonder how the organizations work internally. Do people not return phone calls? Do the admins not not show up till 10? I mean, is there just something sort of poison in the walls that cause no matter what coaches or players step through the step through the front door that they perform worse than they would on average and much worse than if they were at a place like New England. Yeah, well for Cam Newton, you know, I think there's two sides of this cuz people absolutely if he were going to Cleveland, let's say Baker Mayfield's hurt, he goes to Cleveland, people would not treat him as if oh this could become an MVP caliber player again. No chance. No chance. No chance. Um, on the flip side of that, as a player, as an aging quarterback, for any aging quarterback, there could not be a better franchise from what we've seen, what they've done with Tom Brady and how they've adjusted to his aging and his lack of athleticism late in his career uh, than the New England Patriots, right? They run an offense with short throws. They, pr- they, they get rid of the ball quickly so that you're not likely to be hit, um, which protects the quarterback and also prolongs his career. Um, they you know, have a very efficient and almost easy offense for a quarterback to operate as far as the throws that they're asked to, to make and the decision-making they're asked to make. And so I, I think there's a certain sense of it's New England. Any player that goes there is going to, like in the draft, almost any player that gets drafted to New England – when he's drafted, they talk as if this is a steal. This is this guy is a real value. Whereas if the same player had gone one pick later, you know, to the Cleveland Browns, there would be a different look on that player. Um, so there's a very subjective view of players based on where they're going. At the same time, I do think the offense, the coaching staff, and the management in New England uh, is far superior to, to many teams in the NFL and creates a situation where it's more likely for Cam Newton to thrive than you know a, a, a team that has bad coaching, bad management, and bad players surrounding that star player. And again, you know, let's let why don't we why don't we leave Cam Newton at this point with the the final thought being that one of the one of the other things that misses that's often missed out in this world of analytics is the nature of the organization that you plug a player into into mm-hmm. an organization is plugging them into an environment that you know may or, there there may be vast vast differences between the environment as a player uh, you know let's say at the University of Illinois versus the mm-hmm. University of Georgia or the New England Patriots or the Pittsburgh Steelers in the NFL versus the Browns and the, or let's say the uh, other perennial losers like the, uh, the 
Cincinnati Bengals. Mm-hmm. Okay, so with that, Doug, let me ask you this. I'll, I'll sort of let you let you determine the length of the podcast this week. <laughs> okay. Is there anything else you want to talk about you think that we should discuss? You know, for today's episode, I think we're good. I think in the coming... You don't want to talk about the NBA players putting messages on their jerseys? Uh, uh, and and, and, and I'm, not, I'm not trying to lure you into anything. We can always talk about that stuff next week. And <laughs> frankly, I might prefer that. Yeah, I think at this point, for the NBA, for example, I'm still in a wait-and-see mode as to, is this really going to happen? There's so much speculation. We've speculated quite a bit, uh, to be honest, out of necessity, right? Um, as far as the NBA and you know, what that's going to look like as far as their approach to these social justice issues. Um, I think that's a topic at this point for another day because we are over a month away from tip-off. There's so many moving pieces at this point. It does seem as though things are finalized both for the NBA and the MLB. But like we said earlier, everything is a house of cards right now. And, you know, discussions about things that may, I mean, we, we might as well start talking about college football um, and what the season's going to look like, because I think it's just about as likely as, as the NBA. And don't get me wrong. I hope we get all the sports and that everyone's, you know, it's a perfect world where everyone stays safe somehow during all that. I'm just, I'm still skeptical and I'm, I'm a little hesitant to dive deep into discussions, specific discussions as to what it's going to look like until we get a little closer to time. It starts to feel a little more real. Sounds reasonable. <laughs> okay. And so I'll also let me add one more thing and then we'll wrap up for this week. The other, the other thing that we haven't talked about that we will get into a little bit a little bit here, given uh, given whatever's happening in the world of sports, is a little bit of examination of political campaigns. Um, it's it's one of my side interests, and and if you think about it, politics and sports are not all that different in terms of what the analyst looks at. You got contests where people win and lose. Um, you've got essentially fanatic supporters on on each side. And so I've done research on politics throughout the last couple of decades of my career, which means that this uh, and even though I want to be very careful about it, that this coming season with because, geez, I mean, you look at the geez, what a good word, right? That you look at this, that we are um, sports and politics seem to be melding at this point. Now, hopefully when the games start to be played, we can get away from it. But uh, I suspect for the rest of the summer, or at least until late July, when this stuff really starts moving, we're going to be going back and forth between a little bit of analytics and sports and a little bit of politics. Yeah, I, I agree, Mike. And, you know, to kind of echo what we've said on Fanalytics U, politics and those who follow it are very much fans, right? Um now, the situation currently, and we can dive into this in a later episode, but just to kind of give a little appetizer, <laughs> um, the situation currently to me from a fandom perspective is you have one side with devoted fans, um, and I'm talking about Donald Trump with the red hats uh, that we see and, and so much, so many people that identify with, um, you know, whether it's his message or, or just his political ideals. And on the flip side, at this point, I feel as though, and, and we've seen Biden kind of take a backseat and try to to address 
his campaign a little differently um, by maybe not being in the public eye as much. It's less of a Biden fandom and more of a anti-Trump fandom in that it's like the it's like people that watch the Super Bowl to pull against the Patriots or that watch any LeBron James sports team to pull against LeBron. That's how that's how it seems to me at this point. You are a hundred percent correct that it is the the enthusiasm the 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 enthusiasm within Donald Trump's base, and he is running against the hatred for Donald Trump. Biden is. Um, like I say, you know, but but I think it is a, a good point and we will get to that in the few next few weeks, especially as the campaign really starts to heat up. We'll pay attention to politics as sports, but that's a that's a nice way to put it, that it's it's really Donald Trump's fans uh, operating against Donald Trump's haters. And that's the uh, bottom line on that. Yeah. OK, so until next week, thank you all for listening and we'll talk to you again soon.